What is it in your day or week that you yearn and, and desire more than anything else? Picture it in your mind. Is it your morning coffee? Is it that freshly brewed espresso or Nescafe Blend 43? Is it finishing work for the week, that last hour as you come to 5 o'clock on Friday? Do you wait for payday when the money comes into your account so that it doesn't show a balance of $2.50? Do you eagerly desire getting out of your lectures and finishing the uni week so you can go to the beach? Do you eagerly wait and desire to see your family, to catch up with them? Or catching up with your friends on a Saturday night? Do you look forward to getting to do your hobby? Do you look forward to your next meal? Do you wait for your day off and sleeping in for many, many hours? Do you look forward to any of those things? You can open your eyes. What is it in your day or your week that you wait and yearn for more than any other? Life can feel like a whole lot of waiting, can't it? Waiting for lectures to finish, waiting for jobs to finish, waiting for doctors, waiting for waiting periods to be over. Life can feel like a whole lot of waiting. And in this passage tonight, Paul shows us, yes, it is a whole lot of waiting, but we are waiting for something far better than all of those other things that we yearn for and wait for throughout the rest of our weeks. But before we get to our passage, the one we're looking at tonight, uh, let's remember, what has Paul been showing us recently in the book of Romans? Well, he's been showing us that the Christian life is one of immense freedom, hope, and privilege. Because of what Jesus has done in dying for us and taking the penalty for sin on the cross, We have great freedom, freedom from condemnation, freedom from the power of sin and death and law. The Christian life is one of great hope. As we wait for Jesus to return and glorify us, to give us new bodies like Jesus' body, that is what we wait for, the hope of the Christian life. And on top of all that, we have the privilege, the privilege of having the Holy Spirit living in us and being able to call God our Father. God is more than a judge who has declared us innocent. He is our loving and kind Father who has adopted us into his family. And we saw that great privilege last week, didn't we? When we looked at Romans chapter 8, and this is what it says in 16. Have a look. It says, The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. In those two verses, the great privilege of the Christian life, we have God's Holy Spirit living in us. God is our Father and Jesus is our brother. We are heirs with him. But that's not the whole picture. Have a look at the end of verse 17. Paul says, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. The Christian life is one of great freedom and privilege and hope, yes, but it is also one of great suffering. 
Paul says that as children of God on the path to being glorified, on the path to Jesus coming home and giving us new bodies, we suffer. Christian life is one of suffering. Yes, we are God's children now. Yes, there is no condemnation now. Yes, we will be glorified. But Jesus says, Paul says here, we will suffer on the way there. And now Paul starts to pick up on this idea of our present suffering versus our future glory. And he tells us what life looks like in the meantime as we wait for that great day when Jesus returns. He gives us incredible comfort. Have a look, Romans 8, verse 18. This is the beginning of the passage that we're looking at tonight. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. The Christian life is one of suffering as we wait to be glorified. But what does Paul say about our present suffering versus our future glory? He says, present sufferings, not worth comparing to our future glory. Or in other words, the difficulty and the suffering of this life, you shouldn't even make a comparison to the future glory that we have coming. The badness of this life, if you wanted to graph it, if you wanted to put it on a graph and say, well, let's say that the suffering of this life is this much, but the glory of the future life to come with Jesus is this much, well, you'd you'd still be wrong. Did you notice what he said? He says, they are not even worth comparing. The suffering and difficulty of now is so small compared to the glory that is to come that if you tried to put it on a graph, you couldn't. It's impossible. No comparison can or should be made between those two things. Suffering now and future glory. They are worlds apart, chalk and cheese. This is one of the most outlandish claims of the Bible, isn't it? It's verses like this that make us feel angry at Paul and make us say, how can you say that, Paul? How can you say that my suffering is insignificant? Well, he doesn't say it's insignificant. Nor does he say it's easy. In fact, Paul tells us time and time again how hard it actually was for him. Have a listen to what Paul suffered at his present time. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us what he suffered. This was written just before Romans. He says, Five times I received 39 lashes from Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods by Romans. Once I was stoned by my enemies. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles. Dangers, dangers, dangers. You get the picture, don't you? Sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, without food, without clothing. Paul knew suffering well. And so when Paul says our present suffering is not worth comparing to our future glory, We know that he means it. He experienced it. And we also know that what he is talking about must be beyond imagination. Because he says that all of that suffering, 
is not worth comparing to our future hope. Paul experienced all of that suffering, but he was still able to say what he says in verse 18. Paul, he's not making a statement about how easy the Christian life is. Don't get him wrong on that. He's making a statement about just how incredibly good our future glory will be. He wants to comfort us and to build hope and perseverance in us, in our suffering now. But when we know that, when we know our present suffering now and how good our future glory will be, it makes us yearn, doesn't it? When we look at life now and think about the day that Jesus returns, it makes us groan for that day that we are glorified, raised like Jesus. And that's what this passage goes on to say. Life now is full of groaning. Creation groans. We groan. And the Holy Spirit groans, waiting for that day. So first of all, creation groans. Have a look at verse 19. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. And verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. What does creation do? It eagerly waits and groans. Paul personifies the rest of creation, the land and the sea, the trees and the animals, the stars and the sky. He says, when you look at them, it's like they are in labor pains, like a woman about to give birth. When you look around and you see the storms and the earthquakes, the droughts and floods, the death and decay, it's like the world is groaning and crying out. But what is creation groaning for and crying out for? Well, in verse 19, have a look. Creation is waiting for what? God's sons to be revealed. And 21, it's waiting for what? The glorious freedom of God's children. Which is what Paul has already been talking about. He's been talking about the day Jesus comes back and he gives his people new bodies like his raised body. On that day, it will become clear and obvious who God's sons are. They'll have new bodies. This is the glorious freedom God promises us. But why does creation groan for that day? Why, was, why would creation care about us being transformed, changed, made like Jesus? Because when that day comes, Paul says, God's sons are revealed and creation is restored to. So verse 20, have a look. Paul says, Creation was subjected to futility. It is in bondage to corruption and decay, unable to help or fix itself. Paul casts our mind back to, back to the Garden of Eden, back to Adam and Eve, the first man and woman who sinned, but their sin didn't just affect them and their relationship with God. It affected the whole of creation. Thorns and thistles, Death and decay, suffering and painful labor, all of these are God's righteous judgment on humanity and creation. Just as, but just as when Adam and Eve sinned and it affected all of creation, so when Jesus returns and gives his people new bodies, that affects all of creation as well. 
This is the Christian hope. God will not just come back and renew our bodies. He will come back and renew all creation. He will make it as it was meant to be, free from sin, free from evil and death and decay and anything that takes away from God's glory. Like the Garden of Eden, but better. Creation groans, waiting for that day when we are given new bodies. But now Paul goes on and he makes it a bit more personal. He says that we groan. So have a look at verse 23. Paul says, And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Paul shows us that not only does creation groan and wait for our future glory, but we as Christians do as well. He says we groan within ourselves. What does that mean? Well, he says we have the first fruits. He says we have the first fruits of the harvest, which is what? The Spirit. And we know that the rest of the harvest is going to come, which is the redemption of our bodies. So Paul says, we groan in the meantime. Picture this, when a farmer looks out over his field, he sees the crops that he has sowed and he sees them growing up. But then he looks out one morning and he sees one single piece of fruit or one single head of grain standing above the rest. When he looks out and sees that first piece of fruit and that first head of grain, he can close his eyes And he can imagine the rest of the harvest. He can see it. He can picture it. He can almost smell and taste it. And he can imagine the harvest that he will have so that he can feed his family and earn an income. Paul says, that's what it's like for us. We have the first fruits, the Holy Spirit. And we groan. We're waiting We can imagine the rest of the harvest, our full adoption, which Paul calls the redemption of our bodies. Or in other words, we groan. We groan in this sinful world because we do not have the full harvest. We do not have bodies like Jesus. But we have the Holy Spirit, the beginning of that harvest. So we groan, waiting and waiting and waiting for bodies that are not tempted by sin, for bodies without weakness, and without sadness, and without sickness. The Christian life is one of groaning, of helplessness, of weakness and frustration and patience because we have the first fruits, but we do not have the harvest yet. When we look around at the pain and suffering and the evil and the hatred in this world, and we think of our own pain and our own sin. All these things make us groan on the inside, groan and long for Jesus to return. I'm not selling Christianity very well at the moment, am I? Paul does not shy away from saying that suffering and groaning is part and parcel with following Jesus. But what we know is that the glorious future that God has for us free from sin, free from pain, free from evil and death, that day is good. 
that day sells Christianity well. Because it is not worth comparing to the suffering that we experience now. Do you know that experience of groaning? That groaning and yearning for Jesus to come back when you look around at the world. I know I do. I groan when I go to the doctor and he tells me everything that's wrong with me. I groan when I get a migraine that knocks me out for a day or two. I groan when I see that Sarah has still got pain after her hip replacement. I groan when I see my own sinfulness and my inability to overcome it. I groan when I see my brothers and sisters in Christ making unwise decisions. I groan when I see people reject the good news of Jesus. When I see all these things day after day, week after week, I groan. I long for Jesus to come back and redeem our bodies and set things right. And so this passage is a comfort to me. And I hope it's a comfort to you. But it's also a challenge. It's a challenge because in our time and in our place in the world, the temptation is to not take comfort in the future glory that we're looking forward to, but to, in the here and now and the best things that this world has to offer. And so the question that I want us to ask ourselves is this. Do I know this experience? Do I groan for Jesus to come back? Do I yearn for that day? Do I want and eagerly desire the pain and sin-free body that Jesus will give me? Because if we don't groan, then perhaps we have not understood the great hope that God has promised us. Perhaps we are too satisfied with this world and what it has to offer us now. We love here and now, don't we? We love our lives, we love our bodies, we love our jobs, our houses. We make treasure on earth instead of in heaven. As Phil recently said, we are miles away from the saying, too heavenly minded for any earthly use. Instead, we need to hope for what we do not see. Not what we do see here and now. This passage raises our eyes. It points us to the bigger picture. It says, do not settle for the things of this world. Fix your eyes on the glory that Jesus will bring when he comes. Groan and yearn for that day and nothing else. The Christian life is one of groaning and eagerly waiting. And then Paul adds this really, really awesome little passage at the end of this bit we're looking at. This little paragraph that gives us big comfort in amongst our suffering and our groaning. Let's read it from verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also joins to help in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches the hearts knows the Spirit's mindset, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. They're tricky verses, but what is Paul getting at here? He's saying, we are not alone in our groaning. In the same way that creation groans and that we groan, the Holy Spirit groans in us. 
But his groans are a little bit different. His groans are prayers to God on our behalf. Have you ever experienced when you face something that is so difficult, when things get so bad that you don't even know what to pray for? Many of us, I know, know that experience. Many of us deal with chronic illness or have experienced the death of someone close or who who experience mental illness that feels like it's going to overcome you or you've experienced the pain of a broken family and relationships. Paul says here that in those difficult times of weakness and suffering, the Holy Spirit helps us. He helps us by groaning and praying to God on our behalf. So when we are at the end of our tether and we have no idea what to pray and all we can pray is, Dear God, the Spirit does what He does. The Holy Spirit prays in us and for us. He prays what we need according to God's will. That's an incredible comfort, isn't it? These verses are an incredible comfort. We are not alone in our groaning. The Christian life, yes, it's one of suffering and groaning, but God's Spirit in us groans for us. God has given us His Spirit who helps us and prays for us and with us, even in the depths of our suffering. And so this passage is a huge comfort as we wait for Jesus to come back, as we groan and eagerly wait for him to return and redeem our bodies. And so we need to remember the comfort of this passage. We need to burn it into our memories. This is what is true We need to remember that our present suffering is not even worth comparing to our future glory. We need to remember that God has an incredible future in store for us. New bodies in a new creation, free from sin and pain and death, with Jesus for eternity. We need to remember that we are not alone in our groaning, but the Spirit helps us even when we don't know what to pray. We need to fix our eyes on that day because it is not worth comparing to our life and difficulty now. Well, let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for the great promises of this passage. That you have a future glory for us that is beyond imagination, not not worth comparing to our struggle now. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. Thank you that he is with us and he assures us that we are your children. And thank you for the incredible news that he prays on our behalf in the depths of our suffering. Thank you for the promise of new redeemed bodies and eternal life with you. For the incredible hope we have in Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would come back soon to judge and to rule. And we ask that you would help us to groan well in the meantime. And remember the comfort of this passage through our suffering as we look forward to that day. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.